The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 44:22-26. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? For we have sunk down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Help us. Redeem us because of your faithful love. This is the word of the Lord. During his presidential run in 1928, Herbert Hoover coined the phrase rugged individualism. By the way, if you had Herbert Hoover on your sermon bingo card for the day, automatic win for you. You can see Don Sandberg for your prize after the service. But Herbert Hoover coined the phrase rugged individualism. And he felt the phrase, that message of self-will and is pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, captured both the American spirit, but also the best path forward towards this greater social and economic success. But ironically, The very next year, the stock market crashed and America plunged into the Great Depression. But the phrase still lived on. And it continues to describe a a central tenet in a lot of ways of what it means to be an American. And while there are definitely helpful aspects of that line of thinking, there are also some dangers as well when we think about rugged individualism. And these dangers are, are both powerful enough but also subtle enough that they can really undermine some of the most important aspects of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Namely, that we are not our own, but we belong to God. And even then, that we are not meant to be on our own, but that we are part of God's people. Throughout the Bible, we see a constant drumbeat of a family, a holy nation, a people, a church. Christians are collectively the bride of Christ. It's together that we make up a temple and the dwelling place of God. It's together that we experience the blessings of life in Christ. And it's together that we experience the suffering and the pain and the loss that often come with living for Jesus. And it's this last part, really suffering together that Psalm 44 focuses on. It's our text for the day. It's a helpful passage for us because it helps get our eyes off of ourselves as individuals and onto the broader body of Christ. It shows us how we can respond together in times of collective pain and suffering. This is actually our last Sunday as we walk through the Psalms this summer. Last week, Josh preached through Psalms 42 and 43. And Psalm 42 begins with someone who's feeling desperate, feeling thirsty for God. He's like a a dehydrated animal crawling desperately to find life in God. If you remember, Bambi died in Josh's story last week. It was very sad. But both Psalms 42 and 43 end with with this call to hope, to really call for, for God to come and help and provide some kind of relief. And Psalm 44 picks up on that theme, but it picks up as if the writer looks up from this taking a deep drink 
from the wells of God's grace. But he looks up and he sees and he looks around. And he sees that other people are experiencing suffering. He's, he's not alone in this struggle. And the writer of Psalm 44 positions himself in the assembly of God's people. He approaches God not as an individual primarily, but as a fellow sufferer in the collective struggles of the people of God. So this is a psalm of corporate lament, of corporate prayer. And as such, it can be a helpful corrective to many of our individualistic tendencies. We can often think that the biggest problem in the world is our own problem, is our own sin, our own struggles, our own suffering. And we can think that the gospel message is only about how I or you as an individual can be made right with God. And those things are important. Those things are true enough. But it's equally important that we recognize that God does more than just save individuals. He is working to redeem and save a people. And in God's plan, we are brought into the people of God. We're invited into this. And as such, we share a common struggle together. But we also share a common destiny as we await redemption through Jesus. Now, before we slow down and unpack Psalm 44, I think it will be helpful for us to read the whole thing and see how it's put together. So I want to jump right into Psalm 44. In verse 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Beginning in verse 1. God, we have heard with our ears, our ancestors have told us, the work you accomplished in their days, in days long ago. In order to plant them, that is our ancestors, you displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. For they did not take the land by their sword, their arm did not bring them victory, but by your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, because you were favorable toward them. So in this opening section, the writer remembers God's faithfulness to his people in the past. He, he recounts how God drove out the nations and planted their ancestors in the promised land. He fought for them. He won for them, not because of their strength, not because of their goodness, not because of their worthiness, but merely because he delighted in them. He showed them favor. And this, this optimistic look continues for a little bit longer in verses 4 through 8. You are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you we drive back our foes. Through your name we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow, and my sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our foes and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. So in this little section, the writer moves from God's faithfulness in the past to God's, the, the continued faithfulness of God and how God's people continue to trust in him today, right now. And it's as if he's saying, no, you weren't just their God, you are my God, you are our God. We still trust in you. We still believe. You have worked in our lives too. So, so, so far, so good. It's a really optimistic psalm. And it could really end right there and make a lot of sense. But it keeps going. And the next section takes a bit of a turn. Verse 9. But you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe. 
And those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. You hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long, and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and avenger. All this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path. But you have crushed us in a haunt of jackals and have covered us with deepest darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have found this out? Since he knows the secrets of the heart? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. So those first eight verses had a really hopeful tone of remembrance of God's faithfulness and God's mercy. But then you get to verse nine, it just just pivots really quickly. God has been good to our fathers. He's been good to us. But now he's rejected his people. God's people are, it says, rejected, humiliated, hated, plundered, eaten, scattered, sold, disgraced, crushed, slaughtered. This section probably gives us what the best clue that this psalm was written or at least used somewhere around the time of Israel's exile. God's people were defeated by foreign enemies. They were taken to a land not their own. They were exiled, and they were left without a home, without a place of worship. This was the lowest time in the history of God's people. And If you know the story of Israel, you would know that as a whole, they struggled. They struggled with sin. They struggled with idolatry a lot. But from the perspective of this psalmist, there were those who remained faithful. And this faithful remnant followed the Lord even when the rest of the people turned away. And this psalm was written from the perspective of that faithful remnant because they trusted in God. They were loyal to his covenant, but still they suffered. And the psalmist, he claimed innocence. And then ended up saying that it was because of you, God, that we are put to death. They were suffering for the sake of righteousness, and they needed relief. They needed help. And that call for help comes in verses 23 through 26, where he says, Wake up, Lord, why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and depression? For we have sunk down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up. Help us. Redeem us because of your faithful love. See here, the psalmist calls on God to wake up from his slumber. He calls on God to stop hiding, to rise up, and to help. And this this bold request is, is not based on the worthiness of God's people. It is based on the faithful love of the Lord, even through the bitterness and pain and suffering that they were experiencing. So this is, this is the basic gist, this is the basic structure of Psalm 44. And now that we've run through it quickly, I want to I slow down and I want to look at it. Because if Psalms 42 and 43 minister to us on our individual needs, our individual suffering we, we go through, 
Psalm 44 gives us a broader lens. It helps us find our story in the broader story of God's people. It reminds us that we are all in this together. That as Christians, as a church, we we go through the good, the bad, and the ugly as a people who are held up and sustained by our king and our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. So how can we respond in faith to times of, of collective suffering, times of collective pain? The psalm offers four encouragements. First, we must consider God's faithfulness. Consider God's faithfulness. In verses 1 through 3, we see that high-level history of God's faithfulness to his people. And while the psalmist wrote this partly to contrast God's past faithfulness to their current situation, it's still helpful, it's instructive that he begins right here. He alludes to the exodus and their entrance into the promised land. He does this to really stand as a small little piece of the big story of what God has been doing in the life of his people. That story of redemption begins in the garden. And it begins really with with our sin and God's grace. It goes to Abraham and his family inheriting the promises of God, not by faith, not by works, but by faith. This is how they were part of the family of God. It takes us to Moses and to the people of Israel being redeemed out of slavery, not by their might, not by their arm, but by God's power. It leads us to the promised land where by God's grace, They're given a home. They're given a permanent place of worship. And finally, God's people are led, and they're led by this king. They get a good king in David. He gave them victory in their their military and even spiritually for a little bit. But it didn't take long for it all to come crashing down. And God's people rebelled. They were idolatrous. They sinned, and they were exiled. And that's where the psalm picks up. They considered God's faithfulness in the past in part to remind themselves that they've been through rough stuff before and God's been faithful. And they were calling on God to be faithful again. And it's really important that we do the same thing. It's important that we remember that we are children of Abraham. We've inherited those blessings. And as such, we are part of this story of redemption. When we face uncertainty with what God is doing right now, we need to remember the certainty of what God has done, of his faithfulness in the past. And that's what they're doing. And I think this is instructive. This is helpful for us, even as parents. Like the the fathers, the ancestors, the parents in this psalm, we need to soak up God's faithfulness. We need to hide it in our hearts. We need to cherish it. We need to treasure it. So that we can repeat it, we can share it, we can give it to our children. Like When we think about children's ministries at Redeemer, as important as those are, there is nothing more important in the life of your child than for you to cherish God's word in your heart so you can share it with them. When you're driving in the car, when you're sitting on the couch, when you wake up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, we're to share these truths with our children. We should remind them of who they are and who God is and what God has done. Because the psalmist was able to recall God's faithfulness because it was shared to them. Their parents were faithful to share with them the story of what God has done. And for us, like we're, we're part of the story. 
We've, again, we've inherited these blessings. We are part of this story. And for us, it's even brighter because we can look back on the ultimate redemption that we have through Jesus. So we need to regularly and intentionally repeat these truths to ourselves, remind ourselves of God's faithfulness and the fact that there is no clearer example of God's faithfulness than on the cross of Jesus Christ. So we need to remember that, cherish that, have that in ourselves and share it with our children, repeat it to them. This passage calls us to, to soak up God's faithfulness like a sponge so that when we are, we are squeezed by the, the pain and the suffering of life, we exude hope and trust and joy in Jesus. But this, this also shows us that it's not enough for us just to look back on what God has done in the past. That's important. We've got to do that. But seeing ourselves in this story means that we have to take up the shield of faith for ourselves. The psalm calls us to consider God's faithfulness, but also to commit to trust the Lord. We commit to trust the Lord. So in verse 4, the writer transitions from the past to the present. He goes from talking about God's faithfulness to their ancestors to God's faithfulness to them. And in doing so, he's also committing his people to keep on trusting, to keep on believing. God's people continue to live by faith in God's work instead of their own. He said, not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. In different places in the psalm, he uses some first-person language. He goes from first-person to third-person plural, right? And he, he, using this language here to likely allude to that he was like the king. He was standing in the place of being a leader of God's people, and he was calling on them to remain faithful. He was calling on God to work on behalf of God's people. In, in God, we have boasted continually, he says. We will give thanks to you forever. This isn't arrogance. It's not arrogance. It's assurance in the grace and the goodness of God. It's not brashness. It's boldness in God to be faithful, to continue to be good to them, to continue to show them kindness. So he's recommitting and God's people are recommitting themselves to the same God who's been faithful to them in the past. And even though they were experiencing pain and suffering and loss, they weren't planning on leaving. They weren't planning on deserting God anytime soon. They were committed to the Lord. And even this, even this, this picture of faith can't be contributed to their own holiness, their own strength, their own power. This is boasting in God. They're not boasting in themselves. And, and God did not save them, again, because of their worthiness. He didn't save them because they were the strongest. He didn't save them because they were the best. God did not save them because of their great faith. And the same is true for us. Like, we contributed nothing to our salvation but the, the sin that made it necessary. And instead, we're reminded of verse 3 that we are saved. Why? Because God delights in us. He enjoys us. He loves us. He chooses us in mercy and in grace because of the sheer undeserved delight that he feels towards us. So we follow in the footsteps of Christians before us and we, we surrender ourselves to this kind of God, to a God who saves us. And this means we, we need to avoid the trap 
of living off the faith of other people. It's important that we see ourselves as part of this story, uh, part of this broader group. But at the same time, it's important that, that we ourselves, that this generation, this church, this people, that we commit ourselves to the Lord. We can very easily become spiritual parasites and we just live off of other people's relationships with God, other people's insights into the Bible. We need to have it for ourselves. And I think this is a really important message for children and for teenagers in the room. Like, you may be raised in a Christian home with, with, with parents who love Jesus. And that is such a blessing. It's a good thing. But at the same time, you need to take it as your own. You, you need to know that your parents' faith is not enough. That God is calling on every person, individually, and every church as a whole, to, to make their faith their own. Like, each and every one of us needs to entrust ourselves to Jesus. And I pray, and I hope that every person in this room sees their sin, sees their need for forgiveness, and finds hope and healing and life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And it's like the the writer of this psalm saw the victory that God gave them. We can look back, and, and we can see that God has given us victory over the foes of sin and death, and Satan, and we can give thanks to him for his goodness. We can praise him for his mercy towards us. And you may feel like your faith, though, is, is just too small, like too small to make a difference. But I want you to take heart this morning and know that weak faith in our strong Jesus is more than enough. It's plenty. It's going to do just fine. And This is really one of the great blessings of gathering together regularly as the people of God. We remind one another of these things. We remind one another of our commitment to trust in Jesus when we sing, when we pray, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we share words of encouragement to one another. And this is especially true when things are hard, when things are difficult. So in times of suffering as a church, we need to come together We need to come together and consider God's faithfulness. And we commit to trust in him. And as as we look at that, it seems like, again, this would be a great place for the psalm to end. It's a really hopeful hopeful note at the end. But I'm really glad it doesn't end there. Because the psalm is honest about pain. It's honest about suffering, setbacks, and disappointments. Not only that, it, it gives us freedom to bring these things, to bring this suffering to the Lord. We are invited to confess our suffering to the Lord. We confess our suffering. So after the psalmist reflected on God's faithfulness, after he was resolved to continue trusting in the Lord, he brings his burden to God. We see this this like but now language in verse 9. And it's interesting because normally we're used to hearing it and it's like we were sinners deserving nothing but God's wrath and God's judgment. But now God has been gracious to us. God has saved us. That's true. That's not where he goes here. Here the story is we've, we, God's people, we've been faithful to you. We've trusted in you. But now you've rejected us. E- even though we're following you, we suffer. Right? When they looked in the past, it was the presence of God that, that led them to their victory. And now it's, it's the felt absence of God that has led to rejection, that's led to disgrace. 
And we, like, honestly, we all have to come to a point where we, we answer this question, where we answer the question of God's goodness and the reality of pain and suffering. And here, the, the answer is that they hold God responsible for what was going on. They approached God with confidence that none of this was out of his hands. The text says, you have rejected us, God. You have made us turn back. You have made us like sheep for slaughter. You've sold your people. Over and over again, it's apparent that this suffering was from the Lord. God is sovereign over our salvation, verses 1 through 8. But God is also sovereign over our suffering. And they believed it. They saw that. And even though the suffering is from the Lord, it's not, in this psalm, a direct result of their sin. In verse 17, the writer claims innocence. He says, we've not forgotten you. We've not been false to your covenant. So we've not broken your covenant. Our heart has not turned back. So the writer here is confident. No, they're not perfect. But they, they don't deserve what's happening. What's happening is not because of their sin, of their failures. Now, it's important to know that sometimes we do suffer because of our sin. Psalm 38 was about that. Like, we do have consequences when we sin. God does use suffering to remind us and wake us up to that. But that is not what's happening here. It's good to begin there at times when we're suffering. We don't know what's going on. Maybe we should start with being, uh, looking at our heart and seeing if there's something going on. But when we do that and we move on, what do we do? This psalm shows us that we, we don't go to God for forgiveness because we suffer, but we can go to God for hope. We can go to God for help when we're suffering and we don't understand what's going on. We can bring our burdens to the Lord knowing that he cares. And knowing that in this suffering, we are connected with God's people today and God's people from all of time. Like, this is not a new thing. This kind of righteous suffering can be seen from the Bible all the way to today. We see it in the life of Israel. We see it in individuals all throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the first century church. We see it with faithful saints and martyrs throughout the history of the church. We see it in ongoing persecution of God's people today. From Afghanistan to North Korea, all around the world, God's people are suffering. We must remember when we think about that to to weep with those that weep. This passage reminds us of the corporate suffering that God's people continue to experience. Because when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. So this is a a good reminder for us to bring to the Lord the needs of suffering believers around the world. Because by God's plan, suffering, instead of tearing us apart, God can use persecution. He can use this loss to draw us closer to one another. But there's there's another purpose that we see here that God has for suffering. And it's in verse 22. He says, yet for your sake... We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So they believed, rightly so, that this suffering was not for their sins, not for their failures, but this suffering was for your sake, for God's sake. So in this passage right here, suffering was not a a sign of faithlessness, but of faithfulness. And the truth is, if we are faithful, 
we will suffer for the sake of Jesus. Jesus promised persecution and rejection when we follow him. While suffering in our context might not look so severe as a lot of the persecution going on in the world right now, this psalm also helps us to know that it's not overlooked by God. God sees it. For example, there's a very real chance that somebody in this room is going to lose their job in the next couple of years because of they're just being faithful to what God has called them to do, faithfully living out life as a Christian. You may be ostracized by those on your like, political left and political right because of your faithfulness to Jesus. You might feel like you have nowhere to go in that realm. It's okay. When this happens, this psalm, this psalm shows us that victory is not found by us grabbing power, but us, try, but us, us trying to grab prominence. We respond not by making it happen on our own, not by our own arm, by our own sword. What do we do? We humbly submit ourselves to God, to God's sovereign care, to God's mighty power. So we bring our suffering to Him, we confess it to Him, and know that He hears it, know that He cares. And most importantly, when we suffer for God's sake, we can do so knowing that another person suffered for our sake. As the ultimate sufferer, Jesus was killed. Jesus was literally regarded as a sheep to be slaughtered so that we could approach God to find help in our sorrow, in our pain. But also so that our suffering, as difficult as it might be, wouldn't last forever. It would be temporary. There's going to come a day in which our days of suffering will be over. God will not reject us forever. And and that's where the psalm takes us in the last few verses. We we can boldly confess our sufferings to the Lord, but we can also call out for help. We call out for relief from God. Verse 23 calls on God to wake up. It's a bold request. The psalmist knew, he was smart enough to know that God wasn't actually asleep. He made that very clear several times in the psalm that God was obviously present. God was aware about what was going on. But he called on God to wake up because that's how it felt. It felt like God was asleep. It felt like God was absent. And we actually see this fulfilled in the life of Jesus in Mark chapter 4. He was asleep on a boat during a great storm. And his disciples cried out for him to wake up. Like, get up. Don't you care what's happening? And Jesus immediately woke up and he calmed the storm. And he showed them and he showed us that even when it looks like God is asleep, that God is very much present, he is very much aware of what's going on, and he's able to help us. So even though the psalmist here felt like God was hiding his face, even though it felt like God was asleep at the will, that he was going to be gone forever, but they still called out to God. They still had their questions. They had their fears. But those fears drove them closer to the Lord, not further away. Throughout the psalm, we see this example of of, of this bold, big, honest prayer where the things that we fear the most are not kept inside. Even the fears, the questions, the doubts we have about God aren't kept inside, but they're expressed to the Lord. And this in itself is a sign that they know that God cared, that they know God would listen. 
So when it feels like our soul is bowed down to the dust, when it feels like we're at our lowest point possible, we can know, like we can know, we can know that the Lord is there. Psalm 139 talks about this. He says, where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, the lower parts, you're there. So why can we come to God and call out for help and know that will help us? Verse 26 tells us, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So even when the appearance of things looks like God is asleep, like God is absent, the reality is, is his steadfast love lingers on. His steadfast love is there. His delight in us has not and will never falter. The Lord hears us when we call out to him. He hears us every single time. As we were working through the psalm, Verse 22 may have stood out to you, and it may have sounded familiar, and that's because Paul quotes this in his famous passage in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 36. And he uses this exact passage to talk about God's enduring love through and in our suffering. And beginning in verse 35, Paul asks some of the questions that we all ask when we go through suffering. You'll notice that some of these words sound very familiar to Psalm 20 or Psalm 44. He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And here's here's our verse. As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Right. That's the reality of our suffering. That's how it feels. That's a big deal. That's real. But here's the greater reality. The answer to that question is no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God redeems us, not for the sake of our faithfulness, not for the sake of our righteousness, not for the sake of our our beautiful and eloquent prayers that we bring up to him. He redeems us. He sustains us in suffering. He redeems us from suffering for the sake of his steadfast love. And even when it looks like God's face is turned away, we can know with absolute confidence that his love for us remains. And we can know this not because it is stuff out there. We can know this because of the objective reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered for us. His suffering wasn't just an example for us. His suffering was the price that was due for us to escape God's judgment, to escape God's wrath, and enter into his steadfast love, enter into his kindness. And now we're united to him we're united to God, and we're united to one another in an everlasting bond that's never going to fade away. So we can call out to God with confidence that he will hear us, that he will help us. When we consider this, this group of psalms, you know, many of the psalms are put together 
in, in order like songs on an album. Psalms 42 through 43 show us an individual that is suffering and calling out to God. Psalm 44 shows us, it broadens it out, and it shows us God's people suffering and calling out to him. But that story goes on. And in the very next psalm, we see that God's people are not left alone. In Psalm 45, we see the promise of a coming king that is coming to fight for, coming to redeem his bride. He's coming in majesty and power to reign forever. In Psalms 46 or 48, we see that king establishing his throne here on earth, this new Jerusalem over the whole earth. He's going to come and bring justice and peace and wholeness to our brokenness. And in the midst of suffering, we see that God's people were experiencing. God reminded them of his faithfulness in the past. But he also gives them a, a glimpse of the glorious future that awaits everybody who trusts in him. And that same promise awaits us. The psalm helps us. It, it takes our eyes away from ourselves. And it helps us to look around and see our story, our suffering, our destiny in light of all God's people. But it also helps us to look up. Helps us to look up together at our coming king. Because Jesus was the lamb who died and suffered for our sake. But he's also the lion that is coming to rule and to reign and defeat death once and for all. So the psalm shows us that we are all in this together. The good, the bad, the glory, the pain. So pray with me. Pray with me that we would see this. We would have the eyes to see these realities and live in light of them with one another. God, we come to you. And again, like the psalm says, we admit that it is not by our arm, not by our bow, not by our strength, not by our holiness that we are saved. But we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, who suffered and bled and died and rose again so that we could have new life in you. So that even in our darkest days, we could have hope that light is coming that grace is here, that glory is ahead of us. So help us to see these things. Help us to believe these things. And may we encourage and hold one another up. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.